Governor Ron DeSantis seeming to needle Donald Trump over Stormy Daniels. The lead starts right now. Former President Trump claims he's going to be indicted tomorrow in Manhattan in that hush money case. But the district attorney there is still talking to witnesses and Trump's lawyers are calling their own. And the blossoming friendship that has the world on edge, Russian President Vladimir Putin and Chinese leader Xi Jinping meeting in Moscow, what this might mean for Ukraine. Then, could parents be forced to buy separate plane tickets for their infant children? The new push that could ban babies from laps. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with our politics lead and the flurry of new developments in the various and sundry Trump investigations. Police in New York are setting up security cameras and barricades as they prepare for possible unrest. After a possible indictment of the former president, Trump said he expects to be arrested as soon as tomorrow over that hush money payment to porn actress and director Stormy Daniels. Trump's former lawyer Michael Cohen was back answering questions at the prosecutor's office today over that $130,000 payment to keep Daniels from coming forward to tell voters about the alleged affair she had with Trump. This was, of course, right before the 2016 election. And speaking of elections, Trump's expected 2024 Republican primary rival, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, seemed to take a veiled shot today at Trump over the hush money case. I don't know what goes into paying hush money to a porn star to to secure silence over some type of alleged affair. I just, I can't speak to that. But what I can speak to is that if you have a prosecutor who is ignoring crimes happening every single day in his jurisdiction, and he chooses to go back many, many years ago uh, to try to use something about porn star hush money payments, you know, that's an example of pursuing a political agenda and weaponizing the office. Also today, in a separate investigation into Donald Trump, a source confirms that Atlanta area prosecutors are considering both racketeering and conspiracy charges in connections with those efforts to overturn Trump's 2020 loss to Joe Biden in Georgia, although it's not clear if those charges would be levied against Trump or against others involved in the case. CNN's Paula Reed starts off our coverage today from New York with a closer look at the new details in the Stormy Daniels hush money case. The Manhattan DA's investigation into Trump's alleged role in hush money payments made to an adult film star ahead of the 2016 election is moving ahead full steam. Today, attorney Robert Costello appeared before the New York grand jury after Trump's legal team requested he be called to testify about the credibility of former Trump fixer Michael Cohen. Costello previously represented Cohen, who, according to a letter the Trump team sent to the DA, waived attorney-client privilege. Cohen, who has met with the DA's office 20 times and appeared before the same grand jury twice, is a key witness in this case, which centers around a $130,000 payment to adult film star Stormy Daniels to silence her about an alleged affair with Trump. She was paid by Cohen in the final days of the 2016 campaign. 
Now, almost seven years later, the grand jury is looking at crimes that include whether Trump falsified business records when reimbursing Cohen for that payment. This case is not going to be predicated on any one individual, but rather it's going to be predicated on the documents, the evidence, the text messages, the emails. On Truth Social over the weekend, Trump predicted he would be arrested Tuesday and, in an echo of January 6th, called for his supporters to protest. But his spokesperson said they have received no indication from the DA that he will be arrested Tuesday. Is your client speculating about an arrest to incite political violence? I don't think he's speculating at all. Trump denies the affair and any wrongdoing. One of his attorneys, Alina Haba, warning that Trump supporters will lash out if he is charged. If they choose to do so for a misdemeanor, which frankly he didn't even do, it is going to cause mayhem. We don't know if this is the last day where the grand jury will hear from witnesses or when they might vote on a possible indictment. Another question hanging out there is why now, years after this happened and years into this investigation, why is this coming to a head right now? Because we won't speculate on the strength of the case or the evidence, but this is certainly not the most consequential investigation Trump is facing. Jake. Paul Arena in New York, thank you so much. House Republicans are down in Florida today for their annual conference, but it's quickly becoming overshadowed by news of this possible pending indictment of their party's frontrunner for president. CNN's Manu Raju is live at the House Republican retreat in Orlando, Florida. And Manu, House Republicans, they're now launching their own investigation, but not into Trump. They're going to investigate the New York prosecutor, Alvin Bragg. Yeah, and it's going broader than what we initially anticipated. After Donald Trump announced on Saturday that he believes he would be charged as soon as Tuesday in this case, Kevin McCarthy, the House Speaker, indicated that they would look into the, whether federal funds were used in any way to support this investigation. Well, a letter sent today by three key House Republican chairmen went much further, calling for Alvin Bragg to actually come before Congress for a transcribed interview as this criminal probe is still ongoing, also calling for internal communications between the Manhattan District Attorney's Office and the Justice Department and demanding that that information turned over as well. This comes even as Jim Jordan, one of the chairman of these the three committees, indicated to me earlier that he is still unclear about the extent of the potential charges against Donald Trump, but he still maintained that Trump did not break the law. It's a misdemeanor, so it's, it's not you know, really the crime of the century either. Uh, But yeah, this thing is going to be, it's going to have political taint to it, you know, any way you spin it. Look, I think it's completely appropriate. I think a lot of people would expect us, from an oversight standpoint, from a Judiciary Committee standpoint, to look into a politicized process. We don't think, we don't think President Trump broke, broke the law at all. So I just had a chance to try to ask Jim Jordan about why not wait for the investigation to play out until after the charges were made, until after you have reviewed all of the merits of the case. He did not answer that directly, but instead went after this prosecutor, contended that his has a political motivation here, and defended the call for Bragg to come to Capitol Hill and testify. Meanwhile, Democrats are calling this political interference in the middle of an ongoing investigation into the former president here. But Republican after Republican, Jake, that I'm talking to here are aligning themselves with Donald Trump in this effort, even as Senate Republicans have been notably silent since Donald Trump's announcement from over the weekend.
All right, Manu Raju in Orlando at the House Republican Retreat. Thanks so much. Joining us now is Democratic Congresswoman Zilda Offren of California, who was on the January 6th Select Committee. She's also an attorney. Uh, Congresswoman, what's your response to your Republican colleagues there? Well, really, it's shocking. Um, This is obviously improper. I can't recall a time ever where uh, congressional committees tried to intimidate a prosecutor from pursuing a case that he or she thought should be brought. It's um, it's very improper. And, uh, well, I guess it's some of what my extremist colleagues across the aisle uh, do, things that are not normal and highly improper. So based on what we know about this case, do you think that it rises to the magnitude of, of such an un- unprecedented action arresting a former president? I don't know what the case is other than what I uh, read in the newspapers. You know, I always wondered how Michael Cohen ended up going to prison, but the person he says um, ordered him to do it was not under scrutiny. But that's just my uh, idle wondering. None of us know what the uh, uh, district attorney is doing. And we'll find out. He may or may not bring an indictment. I, you know, the, the way our criminal justice system works, uh, an indictment is brought if the prosecutor feels there is evidence uh, beyond a reasonable doubt that a crime was committed. And then uh, the defendant uh, defends. And if uh, the former president thinks that this is all bogus, all he needs to do, uh, if there is an indictment, is uh, defend himself and show that the uh, prosecutor's all wet. Uh, That's the way the system is supposed to work. Trump posted on his uh, social media site, Truth Social, over the weekend that he expects to be arrested tomorrow. He called on his supporters to, quote, protest, take our nation back, unquote. Uh, You served on the January 6th committee. Um, Do you have any issue with that call for protest from Donald Trump? When I heard that, it made me uh, very um, concerned. You know, it, it is similar to the rhetoric he used leading up to January 6th. We know from the mob that attacked the Capitol on the 6th that there are some of his supporters who uh, tend to resort to violence when he calls upon them. Uh, and I don't think I'm the only person who's concerned about this. I noted that after initially uh, supporting the idea of protest. The speaker is now saying there's no need to protest. Everything should be peaceful. I think many of us on both sides of the aisle have a concern that violence could ensue. Let's hope not. Democratic Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren of California, thank you so much. Joining us now to break it all down, Kerry Cordero, the former counsel to the Assistant Attorney General for National Security, and Tom Dupree, former principal deputy assistant attorney general. Tom, walk us through what's actually going to happen if Trump is indicted Uh, He'll have to surrender, I suppose. Where will all this happen? What will it look like? Jake, it's fair to say this will be an arraignment without precedent in American history. I think the first challenge for the New York authorities will be figuring out how former President Trump comes from Florida up to New York. Presumably, they will have him processed in the courthouse. Typically, that would involve everything from taking your fingerprints to taking a mugshot. I can't imagine that he would actually be kept in a cell for any period of time. I think they're going to come in, process him, get his information, and then try to get him out the back door. I think the challenge, of course, is pulling this off without this becoming any more of a a media circus than it already is. And hopefully, 
without any sort of threats of physical protest or physical violence. Carrie, do you anticipate that there will be a perp walk? Do you anticipate that they will release uh, the mugshot if they take one? Well, we don't know exactly what New York's plans are, and we don't know uh, whether there will be an indictment for sure, and if so, when it will come. I would say there doesn't have to be a spectacle like that. Um, first of all, uh, a defendant could surrender, so they could work out a scenario where there's a surrender. Uh, there's nothing about these charges that is indicates any threat to safety or anything like that. So, um, so this doesn't have to be a spectacle, although a lot also depends, again, if he's charged, if he goes up to New York, how the former president chooses to handle such a scenario. Tom, one of the latest uh, Trump defenses, and he has no shortage of them, uh, but seems to be, you know what, rich people do things like this. Uh, Take a listen to one of Trump's attorneys, uh, Joe Tacopina. I've represented many, many beyond wealthy individuals who are resolved cases for what they call nuisance value to make an embarrassing problem go away. And there's no crime. He didn't even do anything wrong. The other side of the argument might be he hid this information to keep it from voters, but right before the 2016 election, and if he hadn't, maybe some people would not have voted for him. Um, But what do you think of of that defense that was just offered by Mr. Tacopina? Yeah, Jake, when I first heard that, I mean, look, I may have lived a sheltered life, but my reaction is I don't actually think this is all that common, at least in my experience. It's not that common to pay hush money to porn stars to keep these stories secret. That said, I I think that the issue here from the the, uh, prosecution standpoint is to try to make this about something more than just kind of covering up a personal indiscretion. They have to make a concrete link between this payment and President Trump's campaign for office. That's what gives the air of criminality to this. And that's what New York, I think, would need to prove in order to convict former President Trump of a felony. And and Carrie, this is just one of several investigations into Donald Trump. There's uh, Jack Smith, the special counsel. He's looking into the uh, secret documents uh, issue, as well as President Trump's involvement in January 6th. And then there's the uh, grand jury in Fulton County, Georgia, where the district attorney is, is watching how this New York case will play out. But she says it will not affect her decisions on charges or timing. Is that realistic, though? Do cases like this not affect one another? Well, so first of all, I mean, I think my big question in New York case is what has changed in this New York case? The facts of this case um, going on almost seven years now are really stale. And so the big question that I have with respect to New York is, is what has changed uh, more recently in the past year or so that has gotten it to this point? In comparison to all of the other investigations, though, Jake, in theory, each of those investigations should proceed independently. So the Georgia prosecutor really should not be looking at the New York case as an example, and it shouldn't really uh, theoretically be influencing the facts of her case and whether or not uh, she has enough facts that would make a prosecutor have a reasonable uh, ability or belief that they could succeed at trial. Um, Similar with the federal investigations. There's nothing about these local cases that in theory should affect either the timeline or the way that each prosecutor assesses the facts of their case. Carrie Cordero and Tom Dupree, thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. Be sure to join CNN tomorrow night for a deeper look 
at Donald Trump's myriad legal woes with my colleague Pamela Brown. Inside the Trump Investigations will air live tomorrow night at 9 p.m. Eastern, only on CNN. Coming up, do you think the warrant from the International Criminal Court came up? The world watches a meeting between China's Xi Jinping and Russian President Vladimir Putin. Then, to, then a look at, at why a Christian school got banned from participating in all competitive sports in one of the most progressive states in the nation. Stay with us. Topping our world lead, China's President Xi Jinping received a warm welcome today in Moscow ahead of his meeting with Russia's Vladimir Putin. It's Xi's first visit since Putin launched his brutal attack and invasion of Ukraine last year. The highly watched meeting has drawn skepticism from Ukrainian and Western leaders, despite China's effort to frame itself as a, as a peacemaker in this conflict. As CNN's Selena Wang reports for us now, the sit-down comes amid concern that China may start sending lethal weapons for Russians to use against Ukrainians. The meeting of two friends, both set up to be leaders for life, showing off their vision of a post-American world order. The pomp and circumstance, a credibility boost for Russian leader Vladimir Putin, displaying that he's got a powerful friend in Chinese leader Xi Jinping, even as the International Criminal Court has a warrant for his arrest for committing war crimes and allegedly shipping Ukrainian children to Russia, and even as the West isolates him amid a stalled invasion of Ukraine. Both Xi and Putin writing glowing op-eds about their country's relations, Xi calling their relationship an eternal friendship, Putin saying the two are standing shoulder to shoulder against America's increasingly aggressive efforts to deter Russia and China. Xi Jinping is trying to walk a delicate line, so far stopping short of providing lethal aid to Russia, though the U.S. says he may be considering it, while also refusing to condemn the invasion. Meanwhile, Beijing is also taking advantage of Russia's isolation. Trade between the two nations jumped to $190 billion last year, an increase of 30 percent from 2021, undercutting the impact of U.S.-led sanctions. As Chinese companies snap up cheap energy from Russia, giving the Kremlin key funds to finance the invasion. But Beijing wants the world to focus less on their friendship and more on Xi's role as a global statesman who can broker peace deals like the historic deal he helped forge to restore relations between Saudi Arabia and Iran. I've been talking to people in this Hutong, this old Beijing residential alley, to get a sense of what Chinese people think about Xi Jinping's visit. This man tells me Xi's visit is good because it can further improve China-Russia relations. He says he likes Putin a lot because he's a cool, tough guy. On the Ukraine war, he says he just hopes everyone can have a peaceful relationship. This woman tells me she hopes Russia wins the war, but peace is best. Another woman says the war and loss of life is heartbreaking and painful to watch. She says it's wrong for America to send weapons to Ukraine, and she believes in Xi Jinping's vision of world peace. When I ask her what she thinks of Putin, she answers that he's righteous, decisive, swift, and tough. But when I follow up and ask if she's heard of the ICC issuing an arrest warrant for Putin, she responds, I didn't know. He started the war after all. He should sit down with Zelensky and talk. This shoe repairman says, why are they fighting? It doesn't do anybody good. But we don't know who started the war, he adds. 
it's the Ukrainians, right? She doesn't need to convince the audience in China, where media is heavily censored, of the merits of his tight bond with Putin. But the rest of the world is watching to see what comes of Beijing's claims of neutrality. And Jake, Russia's state news agency said talks between Xi and Putin lasted for four and a half hours. Chinese state media has been framing this visit as a trip for peace. And it's striking there how almost everyone I spoke to on the streets of Beijing echoed that perspective with very positive views of Putin. But you have to remember that's because in China, social media, media in general is heavily censored. So it's pretty much the only viewpoint most people can see. But look, the China-Russia relationship has historically been a tricky one, but their shared growing adversarial relationship with the U.S.-led rest is really driving Putin and Xi together. Jake. Mm. Selena Wang in Beijing for us. Thank you so much. U.S. officials say that President Xi has yet to call Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, despite China's assertion that it wants to play a role as a peacemaker in the conflict between Ukraine and invading Russia. CNN's Ivan Watson is in Kharkiv, Ukraine for us. And Ivan, how has Ukraine responded to this meeting uh, between Xi and Putin? It's watching very closely, and I would add, probably nervously. Uh, As you pointed out, uh, Ukraine, I think there's a lot of skepticism about whether or not Xi Jinping and the Chinese government are truly neutral, as they profess to be when it comes to this war. But they'd rather have China pretend to be neutral than actually full-throatedly offer weapons and ammunition to uh, Ukraine's much larger enemy, Russia. So you've got statements coming out like the uh, President Zelensky's office saying that uh, supporting only the Russian side will not lead to the finalization of the war. Uh, The foreign ministry spokesperson saying we expect Beijing to use its influence on Moscow to, to put an end to Russia's aggressive war against Ukraine. Uh, And uh, another top security official saying that uh, if China wants to fulfill its so-called peace plan for Ukraine, the first and foremost point is the surrender or withdrawal of Russian occupation forces from the territory of Ukraine. Uh, Also, a top Ukrainian uh, intelligence official says that the Ukrainians are watching very closely the ammunition that they're capturing and, and noticing on the Russian side on the front lines. And so far, they have seen no evidence of deliveries of uh, Chinese arms to the Russian side. But again, they're watching this very closely. And Ivan, this meeting between Xi and Putin comes on the same day that the European Union has agreed to provide more support for Ukraine on, on the front lines. Tell us about that. That, that is sending a, a, an important message, not only to the Ukrainians, but arguably to the Russians and the Chinese leaders as they meet in Moscow. Uh, the European Union, 17 European countries, plus Norway, announcing that they're going to ship uh, a million rounds of 155 millimeter artillery uh, ammunition to the Ukrainians, that they're going to try to put a billion dollars into that effort and then another billion euros, rather, into procuring more ammunition. The Ukrainians delighted with that. And that comes on top of uh, the Biden administration announcing an additional $350 million in presidential drawdown funds. That's for ammunition for those HIMARS that the Ukrainians love, the long-distance missile uh, launching systems, as well as howitzers, Bradley infantry fighting vehicles, 
harm missiles, anti-tank weapons. And that's on top of earlier this month, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in U.S. presidential drawdown uh, defense assistance. And that comes all on top of some $32 billion in defense aid that has come from the Biden administration. And just another country that's offered aid, small Norway, says it has now sent eight Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine. All of this is just trying to demonstrate that uh, European countries, the West, the U.S., are supporting Ukraine in its battle against its much larger uh, uh, enemy with a much larger uh, population. It's held the line so far, but it still needs help. All right, Ivan Watson in Kharkiv, Ukraine, thank you so much. Uh, Coming up, the move made to calm the global banking crisis that has investors and small banks terrified. Stay with us. In our money, lean markets bouncing back after Switzerland brokered a deal for its biggest bank to buy failing rival Credit Suisse. This is just one step forward in the global banking crisis that has investors, regulators, and smaller banks quite spooked. CNN's Rahel Solomon joins me now with the latest. And Rahel, how should viewers be looking at this news? Is there still fear that other banks might fail or is the worst behind us? Well, Jake, it certainly seems like that fear is still there, although today, at least in the markets, those fears taking a back seat as we really witness this extraordinary intervention now on both sides of the Atlantic. Take a look at some of the regional stocks, which, Jake, you and I have talked about a lot over the last week or two. Some stability, at least for some, but not for First Republic. Just hard to even watch. First Republic shares off 47 percent, twelve dollars now. In September of 2022, Jake, those shares were worth $140. So still concerns there about its viability, still concerns there about what's happening with its deposits. The company is saying in a statement that First Republic Bank is well positioned to manage short term deposit activity. But I'm not sure investors buy that. I mean, there was also some reporting from The Wall Street Journal today that J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon is stepping up again to try to support another or try to shore up another rescue plan for First Republic Bank. So confidence issues still persist there. And so there's these concerns, Jake, about ultimately what will it take to provide some calm in the markets? You're starting to hear more support behind this idea of the FDIC, for example, expanding its insurance beyond the customary $250,000 to much larger than that to make depositors feel comfortable. Uh, Nelson Peltz, a hedge fund manager, he said the same on CNBC today. So even despite the extraordinary interventions we've seen, even despite some of the calm we're seeing, at least with some of those regional banks, there is still a concern that ultimately more will have to be done here. Mm, interesting. Rahel Solomon, thanks so much. Always good to see you. Flight attendants want to ban parents from being able to hold babies on their laps during flights. Why this means it could cost parents much more to travel. Stay with us. Topping our money lead, buckle up, parents. The price of flying with your baby could soon skyrocket. That's because the National Transportation Safety Board and a major flight attendance union have renewed calls for a ban on lap babies. That's infants that are allowed to sit unsecured on a parent's lap without his or her own seat for the entire flight. The flight attendance union and pediatricians agree that the practice is unsafe and a ban on it is way overdue. Let's bring in CNN's aviation correspondent, Pete Montine. So Pete, what are parents with lap babies supposed to do if there's intense turbulence. I just asked NTSB Chair Jennifer Hamandy about this, and she put it simply, hold on and hope that you don't lose a grip, because that's the real risk here in turbulence when you have a baby on your lap, which is allowed by the airlines and the FAA. Let's run through the example here. 
A 20-pound infant, about a year old, that's the average weight, you go through 10 Gs, that's 10 times the force of gravity. You may experience that in turbulence, but much more likely you'd experience something even way, way more than that in a crash. 20 times, 20 uh, pounds by 10 times the force of gravity, we're talking an effective weight of 200 pounds. And the FAA simply underscores your arms simply are not strong enough to hold on to a baby like that. What is so interesting here is that flight attendants have been calling for this change for about 30 years now. But it's only coming to light once again because of this FAA safety summit last week. And then also because of these turbulence incidents we've seen on the rise lately. Uh, The uh, Hawaiian Airlines incident back in December, 36 people injured on that flight a 14-month-old baby among the injured. And NTSB Chair Jennifer Hummendy says this is one of 25 recommendations the NTSB has out there to make this recommendation simply a requirement, but the FAA has not acted on it just yet. It makes turbulence, she says, and listen now, a lot less dangerous. Did you ever see the Jeff um, Bridges movie Alive? It's about a plane crash. Yeah, it's from the 90s. Yeah. That's a whole subplot is Rosie Perez not being able to hold right. on to it. You can't do it. Right, and it's just simply because, because of the G's. The weight is amplified. So how do you possibly hold on to something like that? And that is the thing that is really stressed here by safety advocates. It's just a risk. How close is the FAA to a decision on this? Well, we think that the FAA could potentially act on this if Congress acts on this. Because the FAA reauthorization bill is going through Congress right now, that is what gets the FAA its money for the next few years. And so a a reauthorization could also bring in a requirement for uh, an end to lap babies on board airplanes and making sure that parents put their babies in a car seat. But, of course, the flip side to all of that is the expense here, right? So they would have to buy a full fare ticket, right. and airlines in the U.S. simply just don't discount tickets if you want to put a baby in the seat next to you. Really, the best thing you can hope for is an empty seat next to you if you have a lap baby. It's hard to imagine Congress uh, pushing that through, honestly. But, okay, we'll see what happens. Yeah. Pete Montine. Turning to our world leader, a man with dual U.S. and Israeli citizenship is recovering from what Israeli officials are calling a terrorist attack. It happened Sunday in the Israeli-occupied West Bank town of Huwara. The Israeli-American is named David Stern. He's a retired U.S. Marine who reportedly provides weapons training training for settlers in that area. Let's get the details from CNN's Hadass Gold in Jerusalem. Hadass? Jake, David lives in a settlement in the occupied West Bank, not far from where this incident took place. And he and his wife were driving through Huwara, which has become this flashpoint Palestinian town because it sits along a major roadway that many Israeli settlers use. And so as a result, it crosses through this Palestinian town. Now, as they were driving down, they came under attack. A a man shot at their car. Now, David Stern was actually hit in the head, but he managed to shoot back at the attacker, injuring him. The attacker was then later apprehended by Israeli soldiers. And somehow, I mean, when you look at the car, you can just see the number of bullet holes. Now, some of them were outgoing fire, officials say. But somehow, actually, David Stern is in actually quite stable and good condition. The hospital saying that there is no threat to his life. Huara, of course, is where two Israeli brothers were shot and killed in a similar incident about three weeks ago. And then a few hours after they were killed, that's where Israeli settlers went on the, those rampages, those revenge attacks burning dozens of cars and homes, and one Palestinian man was killed as a result. So clearly a flashpoint town that's still under a lot of tension. And Hadass, President Biden uh, spoke with Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu after the attack, and that call came hours before Netanyahu's government announced a a possible change in their push to to try to weaken Israel's independent judiciary. Uh, Tell us about that. Yeah, and actually what we're hearing from John Kirby and from the White House is that the concerns over these, this judicial overhaul was the main point, actually, 
of that phone call. But then today, Netanyahu's government announcing a slight change where they will slightly change the makeup of the committee that they want who will select judges so that the government appointed members would only have a one seat majority instead of a massive majority. And they're also going to pause the legislation until after the Passover recess until the end of April, saying that they're open to negotiations. But the opposition lawmakers essentially saying this is not a compromise. They say this is just a continuation of what they believe is the beginning of the end of an independent judiciary. But, Jake, what was really interesting about that phone call between President Biden and Benjamin Netanyahu is what we didn't hear. And what we didn't hear was an invitation to the White House. Jake. All right. That's gold. Interesting. Thank you so much. Coming up, the fight over high school sports that has resulted in one Vermont school, a religious school, being banned from participating in all competitive sports in the state. Stay with us. We're back with our national lead. Since Idaho passed its 2020 ban on transgender athletes participating in girls or women's sports in that state, more than a dozen other states have passed similar laws, while a handful of blue states are doing the exact opposite, enforcing laws that protect the ability of trans people who want to participate in athletic programs consistent with their gender identity, not the sex that they were assigned at at birth. Vermont is one of those states, CNN's Bryn Gingrass is there, where one private Christian parochial school has been barred from competing in all sports after the girls' basketball team there refused to play against another team that had a transgender athlete. Vermont, one of the country's most progressive states, publicly debating a controversy involving kids that one state lawmaker says left her with disappointment in the adults. It happened in State Senator Rebecca White's district. Mid-Vermont Christian School forfeited a state tournament girls basketball game because the opposing team had a transgender player on its roster. The school arguing a, quote, very real issue of safety was at play. What followed? A swift and sweeping penalty against the school's athletic program by the state's governing body, the Vermont Principals Association. It banned the high school from all competition in all sports moving forward. Is that a bridge too far? No. I I don't think it's a bridge too far. The athletes that we're talking about are unlikely to go on to some of the elite professional athletics. But that concept of discriminating against another young person, it causes long-term outcomes for trans youth because they're hearing rhetoric that is telling them that they're not valuable, that in fact they're dangerous. The VPA said the high school violated the state's policy of support of transgender student-athletes and building an inclusive community for each student to grow and thrive. In response, Mid-Vermont Christian School wrote that it would be appealing the decision, adding... Canceling our membership is not a solution and does nothing to deal with the very real issue of safety and fairness facing women's sports in our beloved state. These are kids. Kids should not feel like they're being ostracized and pushed away because of who are they're just figuring out who they are. That is absolutely the worst thing you could do to a child, no matter if they're 8 or 18. Their case, it's more than an opinion. It's more of a... Uh, a religion. I mean, they're they're a Christian school, and they feel um, that their beliefs are being um, pushed aside. The Mid-Vermont Christian School refused an interview with CNN, as did the school they originally refused to play against. But the on-court controversy has reignited debate about the inclusion and equity of transgender athletes. If they choose not to play that team, then they should absolutely forfeit but it's, it's wrong to carry that over to 
other members of their community and the team, other teams of the school. Last year, the NCAA, the governing body for collegiate athletics, updated its policies on the issue, landing on a sport-by-sport approach. At the high school level, guidance on participation changes state-by-state, according to the latest data from the advocacy group GLSEN, with 25 states placing bans or restrictions on trans or non-binary athletes from playing. Vermont is one of only 10 states which are fully inclusive, something White says the state's worked hard for. We're an inclusive state. We're a welcoming state. So it doesn't surprise me that we've had a situation where folks are pushing back against some of that inclusive work that we've done because it is innovative, it is bold, and it's important. And separate from sports, in fact, Vermont is reaffirming its commitment to transgender youth, Jake, by passing a shield law in one chamber of its legislature just last week, which will safeguard gender-affirming uh, treatments done in the state, like surgeries and hormone therapies. Jake. All right, Bryn Gingras, thank you so much for that report. Also in our pop culture lead, from the locker room to the White House, where excitement levels were as high as a giraffe's top hat, as Coach Ted Lasso might say. Jason Sudeikis and fellow Ted Lasso cast members took over the press briefing today for a discussion about one of the Apple TV Plus's show's more resonant topics, mental health. Take a listen. If you can ask for that help from a professional, fantastic. If it needs to be a loved one, equally as good in a lot of ways, because sometimes you just need to let that pressure, that, that pressure valve release. Uh, the president is working on, and his, and his own team, although his team is real, our team is make-believe, <laughs> I sat down earlier today with Sudeikis for a wide-ranging conversation on the evolution of the beloved mustachioed soccer coach, football coach turned European soccer manager, to be precise, with surprising details about Jason Sudeikis' meteoric rise to fame. You can see that on Friday. CNN primetime, the Ted Lasso phenomenon, Jason Sudeikis, one-on-one. It'll air this Friday at 9 p.m. Eastern, only on CNN, we should note. Uh, Ted Lasso is produced by Warner Brothers, which is a sister company of all of us here at CNN. Vladimir Putin pulling out all the stops for one of Russia's strongest allies. What the meeting means for Ukraine. We're live in Moscow next. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour from New York City to Georgia, Donald Trump facing multiple potential indictments in multiple cities And his legal team has been busy trying to fight back. Plus, the body of a teenager killed in a hit and run is being exhumed. Why this case may be connected to the family of convicted murderer Alec Murdoch. And leading this hour, the world is watching. Chinese leader Xi Jinping is in Moscow for a series of meetings with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Russia's so-called special operation in Ukraine is one focus of the trip. The United States and Ukraine are paying special attention as Xi is trying to frame himself as a possible peacemaker, while also making clear he supports Putin's objectives. It is true that both of our countries share the same or similar goals. CNN's Matthew Chance is in Moscow with a closer look now at how this meeting could strengthen Putin's murderous resolve. It's a crucial state visit, the first by a Chinese leader since Russia invaded Ukraine last year. And just days after the Kremlin strongman was indicted for war crimes. 
now one of the world's most isolated leaders, gets to sit at the side of one of its most powerful. It's a potent alliance. It is true that both of our countries share the same or similar goals. We have exerted efforts for the prosperity of our respective countries. We can cooperate and work together to achieve our goals. But China has so far drawn the line at military aid for Russia's war. There are concerns that may change, but right now it's only Chinese diplomacy on the table. A Kremlin-leaning peace plan calling for talks, but stopping short of demanding a Russian withdrawal, a key Ukrainian demand. We have carefully studied your proposals on settling the acute crisis in Ukraine. Of course, we will have an opportunity to discuss these issues. But there's little sign Putin's open to compromise. This was the Russian leader on Sunday, driving through the captured and devastated city of Mariupol. Local residents, according to state media, are shown thanking him and asking to shake hands when a heckler briefly makes her voice heard. None of this is true, is the cry. It's all for show. But the Russian leader seems undisturbed. And now, with one of the world's most powerful leaders at his side in Moscow, President Putin may increasingly feel he can afford to ignore his critics. Well, Jake, for tonight, the meetings have already come to an end and the leaders, the two of them, are scheduled to hold more formal talks tomorrow on how to bring these two increasingly autocratic uh, countries even closer together and, of course, to discuss uh, that Chinese-backed floated peace proposal. As for Ukraine, uh, they still haven't had a phone call uh, from Xi Jinping about what their role would be in any future uh, negotiations, although I'm told that could change in the days ahead. All right, Matthew Chance in Moscow, Russia for us. Thank you so much. CNN's Phil Manning, he's at the White House for us. Phil, how is the White House reacting to this Moscow meeting between Putin and Xi? Yeah, Jake, to frame the reaction of White House officials as deeply skeptical as it relates to China's pitch that they will be peacemakers here might be an understatement to some degree. But U.S. officials, certainly White House officials in the National Security Council, closely watching every moment for what this relationship will go towards next. And I think when you talk to White House officials, they acknowledge the Chinese and uh, Russian officials have certainly gotten closer. The ties between the two countries uh, have grown significantly closer over the uh, last several months and years. But they also believe that it is a relationship in the words of National Security Council spokesman John Kirby, uh, that is one based on convenience, not necessarily affection. And the biggest question, as Matthew laid out, is whether or not the Chinese are still considering or pushing the idea of providing lethal assistance. This was how Kirby framed things today. We still don't believe that China's taken it off the table. We still don't believe and haven't seen any indication that they're moving in that direction or they've made a decision to provide or that they're actually going to do that. We continue to believe it's not in China's best interest to do that, to help Mr. Putin slaughter innocent Ukrainians. 
And Jake, one of the big questions as these meetings proceed is what's actually going to come with them from a tangible policy basis, deliverables, if you want to use diplomatic speak. U.S. officials don't really have a great idea of things, certainly watching closely. But as Matthew noted, they're also urging the Chinese to actually reach out and arrange a call between President Xi and President Zelensky, something that hasn't happened yet. They're saying that needs to happen in order for Xi to play any type of, quote, peacemaker role, if you will. I would also note that when I asked John Kirby today whether or not he, the U.S. officials viewed uh, Russia as a client state of China, he said they certainly are a junior partner in the relationship, Jake. Hmm. Phil Manningly at the White House, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Let's go now to Ukraine and CNN's David McKenzie, who's live for us in Odessa. David, how are Ukrainian leaders reacting to this meeting? Well, Jake, they've been careful not to directly criticize or even obliquely criticize China. A foreign ministry spokesman saying that they hope China would use their relationship and their power, at least, over Russia to and try and push this in a way that makes sense for Ukraine. Of course, as Matthew touched on, no negotiations will happen from a Ukrainian perspective unless Vladimir Putin withdraws his troops from Ukrainian land. So the peace plan that China has put on the table is kind of dead on arrival as it sits. And whether there will be a call between Zelensky and Xi Jinping, well, they were always going to talk to Putin first. I think the officials here hope that will happen after these meetings wrap up. Jake? And, and David, as China symbolically displays its support for Russia with this meeting, uh, there's also a significant ramp up in support from the European Union for the Ukrainian government and the Ukrainian cause. Yeah, it's, a, it's very much a split-screen moment. More than a million ammunition rounds. That's what the EU and Norway have pledged of the 155-millimeter round. That's crucial for the artillery pieces that are pounding away at uh, Russian positions, Jake, that are trying to push through towns like Bakhmut in the eastern part of the theater. You also had uh, the Nor uh, Norway uh, bringing in more tanks and other uh, key bits of artillery into the country. I think that uh, Zelensky in particular is showing this as the moment where he is getting unity from NATO, from the U.S. and, and other allies at this moment when Putin is talking to Xi. Jake? Right, David McKenzie in Odessa, Ukraine for us. Thank you. Joining us now, former U.S. ambassador at large for war crimes issues, Clint Williams, and he's now lead coordinator of the Atrocity Crimes Advisory Group. Uh, Mr. Ambassador, thanks for joining us. So China, which still refuses to call Putin's invasion and invasion, is calling Xi's trip to Moscow a, quote, journey of peace, unquote. What, what would you call it? Uh, I would call it unfortunate. I, I think the timing of Xi's visit to Moscow is, is shameful. Um, clearly, the Chinese has seen what's been going on in Ukraine. And while they might have preferred otherwise, I don't think they can be surprised at the fact that Vladimir Putin has, has now been charged with, with war crimes. But as Secretary Blinken said earlier today, uh, instead of condemning these atrocities, they're providing diplomatic cover for Russia to continue committing those crimes. This is a major meeting between two superpowers, even though they may be pariahs to a degree. Does Xi's very public show of support for Putin increase to the threat level, increase the threat level to the Ukrainian people? Does it increase the threat to the international community, do you think? I, I think certainly Vladimir Putin feels bolstered by, by Xi coming there, uh, particularly just right on the heels of this indictment, or I'm sorry, this arrest warrant being issued. Um, but I, I think it's reflective of where China has moved on international justice issues. 
When I served as ambassador during the Bush and Obama administrations, I dealt with the Russians, I dealt with the Chinese, at the Security Council on these issues. And while Russia was already quite hostile to any sort of international justice efforts at that point, the Chinese had a much more pragmatic approach. But now they firmly moved into the same camp with Russia of open hostility to, to these ideas. U.S.-China relations were already stretched way thin before Xi's meeting with Putin. Uh, the White House National Security Council's John Kirby told CNN this morning that a call between Biden and Xi has not been scheduled, but it will happen at the appropriate time. When that appropriate time happens, what do you think Biden should say to President Xi? I think he should reinforce to him that he's putting himself on the wrong side of history. I think history is going to judge Vladimir Putin very harshly, no matter whether he is ever brought into the dock at the International Criminal Court or not. Um, And the Chinese have always been quite careful at, at not aligning themselves too closely with, with people who are committing crimes like this. So I, I think it's, it's a strong message that President Biden can deliver and should deliver when he speaks to him. The State Department's human rights report this year highlights the war crimes committed by Russians uh, against the Ukrainian people. Secretary of State Tony Blinken writes, quote, there were credible reports of summary execution, torture, rape, indiscriminate attacks, and attacks deliberately targeting civilians and civilian infrastructure by Russia's forces in Ukraine all of which constitute war crimes, unquote. This report comes just a few days after the International Criminal Court issued that war crimes arrest warrant for Putin. But we should also note the State Department did not draw specific connections between Putin and the war crimes they allege occurred. Why not? I think at this point, uh, the administration has not seen all of the evidence that was reviewed by the panel of judges in, in The Hague. Um, but we have to rely on the fact that you have now an international judicial institution reviewing this evidence that has been presented by the ICC prosecutor, Kareem Khan, and has determined that it's sufficient to link President Putin personally and Maria Lvova Belova, his commissioner for children's rights, uh, to these crimes that are being committed, particularly these abductions of children and forced assimilation into, into Russia. In that same report, um, Blinken said that the U.S. has formally determined that the armed forces on all sides of the conflict in northern Ethiopia, all sides have committed war crimes. What's the best way for the U.S. to help facilitate justice and accountability uh, there? As you may know, one of our reporters, one of our great international correspondents, Nim Al-Bagher, has done a lot of reports about the, the horrors that are going on there. What should the U.S. do? I, I think the conflict in, in Ukraine has overshadowed what is what is going on in Ukraine. In, I'm sorry, in Ethiopia. Um, in many ways, this has been a hidden conflict for, for a long period of time. But I, I think the, the State Department got it exactly right here. There have been crimes by Ethiopian um, military forces, Eritrean forces, and the Tigray Defense Forces as well. So I think the United States can push for accountability in the region trying to uh, put pressure on the Ethiopian government, the Eritrean government, and on regional bodies like the African Union to do more to try to ensure accountability arising from this conflict, which has taken a horrific toll on the civilian population in that area. And the Biden administration, we should know, today announced another $350 million in security assistance for Ukrainian forces. This includes more ammunition, missiles, anti-tank weapons, other equipment. 
The number one thing on Ukraine's wish list, however, continues to be fighter jets. In your opinion, do you think it's time for the Biden administration to provide those? Uh, this is probably venturing a little bit beyond my expertise. I, 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 you know, I'm certainly inspired by my dealings with the Ukrainians in terms of their will to see this conflict through to the end. And this is an attitude that they've exhibited since day one. It hasn't, uh, it hasn't flagged at all. And I would like to see the United States and all of our allies being as supportive as we can in providing whatever types of assistance they need to, to maintain their defenses. All right, Clint Williamson, uh, thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Coming up, why Miami Beach could institute another stricter curfew during the height of spring break. Plus, the oath they kept may now land them in jail. A new conviction related to the January 6th insurrection as Donald Trump potentially becomes the first former president to be indicted on a separate matter. In our national lead, a state of emergency in Miami Beach. Two fatal shootings over the weekend, prompting city officials there to put in place a curfew to crack down on unruly spring break crowds. CNN's Carlos Suarez is in Miami Beach for us. Carlos, local officials today are discussing even more measures. What's next? Yeah, Jake, so it's uh, becoming increasingly clear that the city of Miami Beach is going to bring back that emergency declaration and with it, that curfew. It's an issue that city commissioners are at this hour debating before a group of angry residents who want to see a good deal of change for a good part of Miami Beach. That curfew looks like it's going to come back to Miami Beach on Thursday the 23rd, and it's going to last through at least Sunday the 27th. So what we're looking at here is a midnight curfew that will last until 6 in the morning. There appears that there is going to be some additional restriction on the sale of alcohol and hotels. They are uh, they're going to be allowed to stay open. However, they are only going to be able to service guests. We've talked to a number of businesses, workers up and down Ocean Drive, where both of these shootings took place. Everyone out here expressed a great deal of concern about the situation, not only this past weekend, but in the weekends leading up to what happened out here. They all say they've already seen their bottom line, uh, their bottom line, their sales, their wages. A lot of their money is being impacted because of all of this violence. But city leaders, they stressed, look, we understand that people's salaries are being touched by this, but so are people's lives. And ultimately what matters to them, at least right now in the short term, is protecting the folks that are visiting South Beach, Miami Beach, from here through about the early part of April, when spring break is expected to wrap up. Just a few minutes ago, we heard one of the commissioners talk about this very issue, and here's what he said. These aren't spring breakers, they're lawbreakers who don't respect police, they don't respect law, they don't respect innocent lives. Uh, And I need to follow the recommendation of our law enforcement when they tell me that they need this emergency order to protect our city. This is not about dollars and cents. It's about law and safety. It's about lives and safety. So the city of Miami Beach has been dealing with this issue for several years now. And one other item that they're taking up is whether or not uh, the city ultimately is going to have to introduce metal detectors. That is something that the chief of police, as well as the city attorney said, look, we're not going to be able to do that uh, in the short term. We're not going to be able to do that over the next week or so. We can take a look at this issue perhaps for next year and the spring break that follows then. 
But already, Jake, there are some constitutional arguments to be made here because a lot of the gathering is taking place in very public spaces, including public parks. Jake? All right. Carla Suarez in Miami Beach for us. Thank you so much. Still ahead, a look at how Donald Trump's lawyers are trying to fight back against any number of possible indictments in multiple cities. Stay with us. In our politics lead, six people affiliated with the far-right militia group, the Oath Keepers, were convicted today on charges related to the January 6, 2021 Capitol insurrection. CNN senior crime and justice reporter Caitlin Palance has been following the trial. Caitlin, walk us through the charges. Well, this uh, trial today, it was against six different people who are affiliated with the Oath Keepers. Uh, they weren't the leaders of the group. We've already seen those trials take place and the Justice Department earn convictions there for seditious conspiracy. This, though, this group, many of them were accused of the conspiracy to obstruct Congress during January 6th. And what these charges uh, revealed and what the jury agreed with, what was convicted here, is that members of this group were engaging in a stack formation. So they were moving together in a military-like fashion. They were people that were moving toward the Senate chamber. And so this is the type of case. It isn't the tip of the spear in the Justice Department's prosecution of members of the Oath Keepers, but it is yet another conviction that they have secured the third trial in the in row where they have gotten convictions, where they've been able to highlight the risk of violence at the Capitol on January 6th, that these people affiliated with the Oath Keepers were working together, that they had a plot, and that they were also coordinating getting firearms around the Capitol building on Washington, D.C. All right, Caitlin, stick around. Um, Former President Donald Trump is criticizing prosecutors today after announcing that he expects to be indicted in New York as soon as tomorrow in that Stormy Daniels hush money case. Trump is also staring down possible indictments in Georgia and in Washington, D.C. Let's bring in CNN's Kara Scannell and Sarah Murray, uh, along with Caitlin. And Kara Scannell, what's Trump's defense team doing today to prepare for this widely expected indictment? Well, Jake, Trump's team has pushed the Manhattan District Attorney's Office to call before the grand jury today a witness that they think might be favorable to them. That's Bob Costello. He is an attorney who's represented several Trump allies. And at one point, he represented Michael Cohen. So Costello was down here in the building behind me today testifying before the grand jury for about three hours. Uh, He left just before five o'clock. And what he was coming in to say, according to Trump's attorneys, was that he had information that could undercut Michael Cohen's credibility. Cohen, of course, is the star witness in this case, the person that facilitated these hush money payments, uh, which he said he did at the behest of Donald Trump. Now, Costello was going to tell the grand jury, and he brought with him hundreds of pages of documents, including emails, uh, to, to say that Cohen had told him previously that he believed that Trump had done nothing illegal. Uh, so after Costello left, we also learned that Michael Cohen, who was here as a potential rebuttal witness, he left without testifying. And his attorney, Lenny Davis, says that Cohen was available for over two hours, but they're pleased to report he was not needed. So it's not clear if Cohen will be called back. Uh, certainly, we seem to be getting to the end of this with a decision likely soon. Jake? And Sarah Murray, you've been following the case in, in Atlanta, Georgia, and we've learned that Georgia prosecutors are now considering adding racketing and conspiracy charges in connection uh, with Trump's effort to overturn the 2020 election results in that state. Trump's lawyers were in court today to slow this down. Tell us more. 
Yeah, I mean, this is another case where we are waiting to see if there are going to be any indictments. But this is the first legal move we've seen by Trump's team. They filed a very lengthy motion where they're essentially trying to get a lot of the investigative work that's been done over months and months tossed out. You know, they're taking concerns with the way the special grand jury in Georgia was set up. They're basically saying that a judge should throw out the special grand jury's final report. You know, it's not the kind of grand jury that can issue indictments, so it issues a final report. But they're also saying you should throw out all of the evidence that this special grand jury collected. So, you know, all of the testimony they got from the 75 witnesses should be trashed, that any documents that they may have subpoenaed and had returned to them as part of the special grand jury's investigative work should also be thrown out. And they're also asking for the district attorney who's been overseeing this case to be disqualified. So it's a big swing from the Trump team to try to get all or part of this case thrown out before there's even been charges, Jake. All right, I'm trying to keep track all these Trump investigations. In New York, and the one in Georgia overturned the elections. And then there's also this one at the federal level, Caitlin. Uh, We also saw other Trump lawyers in court today in connection with the special counsel investigation. He's investigating two things. One is January 6th. The other is his handling of classified documents. Uh, So tell us about that. Right. So you hear what's happening in New York and Georgia, but there is still a very precarious situation for Donald Trump in the Mar-a-Lago documents investigation that's been going on for a year. What has happened over the past few days there has really put him and his team on the defensive. That's because the Justice Department had taken this extraordinary step to try and force answers out of his defense lawyer, Evan Corcoran. A federal judge agreed with the Justice Department on Friday. That was Judge Beryl Howell in the D.C. District Court. And so Corcoran now is trying to hold off having to go back and testify to the grand jury and provide even more information about his private conversations with Donald Trump related to the classified documents at Mar-a-Lago after the presidency. So that's a really big thing. We don't know what what happened uh, in that proceeding today or that hearing today. We do know that Evan Corker and his lawyer and a lawyer for Trump were all at the courthouse for a short period of time. They're all under seal. But everything, every time we see these people, they are on the defensive and they are continuing to have to fight for Donald Trump against all of these ongoing criminal probes. All right. Yeah, it's tough to keep them all straight. We're going to need some March Madness graphics uh, to, to keep track of all these. March Maganess. You can, you can uh, copyright that. Caitlin Palance, Kara Scannell, Sarah Murray, thanks one and all. So let's talk more about this one uh, with our panel. So uh, this was interesting. In his first comments about the case, Ron DeSantis has been under pressure from Trump allies. Please say something. Please defend. Or maybe it's not please. You need to defend him. You need to uh, say something. So Governor DeSantis, um, a potential rival, uh, did finally weigh in today. Here's part of what he had to say. I don't know what goes into paying hush money to a porn star to to secure silence over some type of alleged affair. I just, I can't speak to that. I've got to spend my time on issues that actually matter to people. Uh, I can't spend my time uh, worrying about uh, things, things of that nature. Ramesh? (laughs) <laughs> that, what's your take on that that was kind of saucy i thought yeah, yeah. I, uh I, it's you know that's that rhetorical technique it's of uh you know i'm not going to mention even this uh lurid story about uh president trump um i think that you know he was he struck a balance because i think a lot of republicans are going to have no sympathy for trump's underlying conduct here but are also going to have questions about whether this is a political prosecution and he sounded both notes, uh, he, and I think he did it in a pretty clever way. And he showed, actually, 
I think he actually made the case against the politicized prosecution better than Trump himself does because he's in more command of the facts. But here's what he also did. He clearly did not defend Trump, but he also pivoted to a culture war argument. As part of that comment, he mentioned that, oh, this is a Soros-backed prosecution, which is online code for anti-Semitism and the idea that uh, one of the world's biggest philanthropists, who is a Holocaust survivor, is somehow running this investigation. Well, let me come back to the Soros thing in a second. I, I, I got you here, but uh, but I just want to note one other thing, which is that Donald Trump did respond <laughs> to this in his inimitable way. He said on Truth Social, Rhonda Sanctimonious will probably find out about false accusations and mm-hmm. fake stories sometime in the future as he gets older, wiser, and better known. When he's unfairly and illegally attacked, even classmates that are underage, or possibly a man. This is attached to a story about how when DeSantis was a teacher in his 20s, there's a photograph of him with some high school kids a few years younger than him. Who knows what, what's going on? But, uh, or possibly a man. What, what's he insinuating there? And he's what? like, oh, fake stories are coming your way about maybe even a man, Ron. Yeah, I mean, who, some people are saying, right? <laughs> right. So uh, my initial takeaway from that is that... Um, these guys are ready to bloody each other. Mm-hmm. They are ready to go at it. DeSantis is signaling that he is not going to come rush to Donald Trump's defense to preserve his frontrunner status in the early nominating contest. And Donald Trump is saying, if you punch me, I'm going to punch you back and it's going to get nasty. And uh, and uh, the Soros stuff on the side, too. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, No, no. I mean, I think Donald Trump clearly needs to figure out how he's going to attack Ron DeSantis. There have been all sorts of uh, thoughts about nicknames like Meatball Ron, I think was one of them. Ron DeSanctus, Ron DeSanctimonious. Uh, And now he is. Ron DeSanctus doesn't mean anything. Yeah, Ron DeSanctus doesn't mean anything. But he keeps saying it. Yeah, I I don't know. (laughs) Um, But now he's sort of going high school locker room, right? With this uh, idea that somehow he might be gay and there are whispers about him. Uh, We'll see how effective it is. I think there's going to be more to come. It's going to be nasty. Ron uh, DeSantis, who did very well in Florida, hasn't faced somebody who's sort of down and dirty in the way that Donald Trump Trump has. But Trump hasn't either. But Trump has not either. You know, some races end up in the gutter. This one's starting there. It actually hasn't even started and it's already there. But what strikes me about this is that Trump is not holding anything in reserve. Um, He's already gone to about, you know, the most vicious attack. Whereas there are multiple lines of attack that DeSantis has open on Trump. He, he hasn't taken yet. He's ve- been very careful in actually not frontally taking on. Yeah. Today was as, as harsh as he's been a- about him. He doesn't really need to. He's got yeah. prosecutors in three major cities uh, <laughs> doing it. Okay, now to the Soros thing. So just to give people an update, you mentioned this. Uh, George Soros is this billionaire philanthropist uh, and p- political activist, very progressive. Um, through a network of nonprofits and affiliated PACs, Soros has contributed uh, more than $100 million to pro- pro- progressive candidates and causes just in the 2022 election. So he has helped elect progressive prosecutors. That is true. Um, but obviously, because he's Jewish and a Holocaust survivor, there's also pe- there are also people who use the Soros thing as a smear. That's also true. Um, here is DeSantis and uh, Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House, both talking about that. I have not seen any facts uh, yet, and so I don't know what's going to happen. But I do know this. The, the Manhattan District Attorney is a Soros-funded prosecutor. This is a DA that got more than a million dollars from Soros that actually funds and for political purposes on who becomes a DA. So you automatically think that that's anti-Semitic to do that? or Oh, I think it taps into something that exists online right now. It, yeah, criticize any philanthropist that you want. Um, but when you specifically talk about Soros, 
giving $32 billion of his personal wealth to charities around the world, but you hone in on him as a Holocaust survivor and then talk about this, the old conspiracy theories about Jews controlling the world, that has been there throughout the Trump campaign. It has been there for, for weeks leading up to this news cycle. And so it's just a quick catchphrase that signals to all of their followers that, ah, yes, this is an explanation for what's really going on with our guy, Donald Trump. So we, and we would see this on the other side, too, just to be fair. Like whenever Sh- Sheldon Adelson, who, who has since passed away, whenever he or Netanyahu would do something and they were portrayed as puppet masters leading Donald Trump around, etc., uh, people on the left would say that's anti-Semitic. What, what's your take? So I, I sort of view it the way I view criticism of Israel. It can be anti-Semitic, but isn't, it isn't necessarily anti-Semitic. And we shouldn't allow the fact that some anti-Semites criticize it chill our debate about it. In the case of Soros, it's not just one guy being singled out. This is the major funder of this campaign to elect progressive prosecutors around the country, a campaign that has been remarkably successful and, of course, is going to be controversial. This, you know, it, it, it would be sort of unnatural to attack without mentioning Soros, especially since Soros has been a major liberal funder and has gotten to be a bogeyman for conservatives for years and years. Now, I think it's important to try to keep your distance from the anti-Semitic criticism of him, but I think that you, you just have to allow I think it's really that the debate's going to include but, criticism. Yeah. This points to a bigger problem of the fact that DAs have to be elected. Yeah. And there was recently a story about how President, uh, of rather former New York real estate mogul Donald Trump was one of the biggest donors to the former DA of New York City. So this is part of the, the process Morgan of or, or, Morgenthau. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He was there for a long time. And yeah. who was the same district. And I think there's another sort of disturbing part of this as well. The fact that some of these folks who are involved in these prosecutions are African American. And sometimes you hear Donald Trump, for instance, say these people are going after him because he's white, that they're racist. Well, they call him racist. They call I mean, he, call, he, calls he, calls racist. Racist. he calls them racist. He calls them racist. Right. Yeah, yeah. He's the victim. There has been a 20-year campaign in the conservative movement to discredit George Soros and to make his name synonymous with something bad. And I would just say for anyone who's watching this, if you want to know what you're supposed to think of George Soros, like it's pretty easy to do your own homework. Google the Open Society Foundation. Find out what causes he's given to. He's um, been part of progressive causes. He's also been part of ensuring people have access to the ballot. The reason a lot of people have negative associations with his name is because of conspiracy theories. And I think that's the trick is if you look at George Soros's politics and you say, I don't like that, that's fine. But if you hear his name and think it's something bad, I don't know what it is. It's some QAnon thing like that's where the problem lies. It's important to do your own homework and yeah. make your own judgment. One other defense that I thought was interesting from Speaker McCarthy. Uh, let's take a listen to this. Doesn't matter what side of the issue you're on. It doesn't matter if this was President Trump or if this was a Democrat. It should be equal justice in America. And stop going after people because you have political differences. Now, we should note that in response, New York Congressman Dan Goldman tweeted, Hillary Clinton and Hunter Biden would like a word. Who is he talking to when he says stop going after them? Regular voters or actual lawyers and people who are working to uphold the rule of law? Right. There are three separate cases and four separate cases in three different jurisdictions. That is not part of any political conspiracy theory. What it is, is trying to hold the commander in chief accountable in the same way that anybody else in the United States would be accountable to the law. I guess one of the one of the uh, interesting arguments here is that there are more serious charges um, from uh, special counsel Jack Smith uh, and what's going on in Fulton County. Uh, And then this one from Bragg, uh, which which is, you know, 
as far as we know, based on misdemeanor, based on some accounting procedures, uh, they clearly were trying to hide the hush money payment from the voters and probably from his wife as well. Um, but, but does it taint all of it, I guess? Well, I think that if you are pro-Trump, you're going to try to use it to taint all of them, particularly if Bragg moves first, which is the way it's looking. But, you know, this is, this, I think, has a lot of the markers of a weak case. We're talking about something that the federal prosecutors decided not to, to take. We, we're talking about something that Bragg's own office declined to go forward with last year, and it led to a lot of protests. And it has all the makings of a political prosecution. Of course, Republicans are going to object to that. We should also just note um, another uh, issue. President Biden issued his first veto today uh, about a resolution to overturn a retirement investment rule that would allow managers of retirement funds to consider the impact of climate change and other environmental, social, and governance factors when picking investments. So basically, it's people protesting. The Biden administration was trying to encourage um, what his critics would call woke policies and investment funds. And the House and Senate said no. And Biden's saying yes. Uh, but it's, again, the, this, this woke business is... Yeah, whatever is, the hell woke means, right? I yeah. mean, nobody seems... Well, to considering know, environmental, you know, social, and governance factors when I picking mean, I, I investments. Guess, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Joe Manchin would say, you should just be picking what's going to make money. Right. Listen, you know, Joe, uh, Joe Biden has been in a bit of a tough place trying to sort of um, be good on the environment. Uh, but of course, he has this other uh, really loud chorus of conservatives who are screaming woke. They're screaming this about this bank, for instance, and saying that their woke policy somehow led uh, to the collapse of this bank, even though it was really about interest rates and, and, and general mismanagement. So no, but I think this whole idea of woke is going to be a big topic and sort of confusing a nonsensical one in the 2024 a discourse among Republicans. Uh, so we'll see where it goes. It's also just tough to explain, yeah. which is one of the reasons why I, we'll see how successful it is, yeah. but it's difficult to explain what it all means. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people struggle to define it as well. Thanks one and all for being here. Coming up, the Murdoch murder saga continues in South Carolina. Body could soon be exhumed to see if the family was tied to that death. The new details next. In our national lead, the body of Stephen Smith, a teenager who was found dead in the middle of a South Carolina road in 2015, could soon be exhumed. This comes nearly two years after the investigation into Smith's death had been reopened, and that was because new information came to light following the 2021 deaths of Maggie and Paul Murdoch. All this renewed scrutiny over Smith's death comes just weeks after disgraced attorney Alec Murdoch was sentenced to life in prison for killing his wife Maggie and their son Paul. CNN's Diane Gallagher joins us now from Charlotte, North Carolina. Diane, why is the Murdoch family linked to this case despite there being no connection made by police? So that's important that no direct connection has been made by police. But in part, the reason why they're linked to it is because of a statement from the state law enforcement division that they put out in June of 2021, where they said they were opening the death investigation into the killing of Stephen Smith because of new information that was gathered during the course of the double murder investigation of Paul and Maggie Murdoch. Now, 
look, from that point on, we've seen rumors and innuendo. A lot of it has found its way into documentaries and podcasts and social media where rabid uh, followers of that Murdoch murder trial uh, began to talk about the Stephen Smith case. Buster Murdoch, the oldest and only surviving son of Alec Murdoch, was a classmate of Stephen Smith's and has been at the center of those rumors. He broke his silence today in a statement sent to CNN uh, where he basically said he hadn't been talking about this at all because, well, look, his father was on trial for the murder of his brother and his mother. He's been grieving. He added, the baseless, these baseless rumors of my involvement with Stephen and his death are false. I unequivocally deny any involvement in his death. And my heart goes out to the Smith family. Uh, Jake, the state law enforcement division has never, ever discussed what that information they gleaned uh, from the Murdoch murders investigation was in terms of Stephen Smith. So what are the next steps into the investigation into Smith's death? So there's two investigations now, one of them being that state investigation, which we were told on Sunday is still ongoing and active and has they've made progress. And then the other one is a new private investigation that was announced today by the mother of Stephen Smith and her attorneys. And their first step, they say, is to petition a judge so they can exhume Stephen's body. What we're going to do is start over. We're going to hire experts who are going to come into this case with a fresh set of eyes, with an open mind, without any preconceived conclusions. It's important to me because, I mean, I just love my son. And since I couldn't protect him, I'm going to fight for him. Um, I want to thank everyone who's donated and supported us from the beginning. And but I hope to find the real reason for Stephen's death and the real why. And look, the way that she is likely going to pay for much of that, Jake, more than $70,000 have been donated to a GoFundMe so they can begin uh, this independent investigation as well as attempt to afford uh, exhuming the body of her son. Diane Gallagher in Charlotte, North Carolina, thanks so much. The climate time bomb is ticking, and it may already be too late to reverse the damage. What you need to know, that's next. Our Earth Matters series now a dire warning that, quote, the climate time bomb is ticking. A new report from the United Nations warns that the world is on the brink of catastrophic global warming, and basically no nation is on track to keep the promises they've all made to try to stop it. CNN's Bill Weir is here. Bill, tell us more. Well, each one of these uh, six reports over the last 40 years has gotten more and more dire. This one is unequivocal. It is worse than we ever thought it was going to be. And the time is ticking in order to defuse this climate bomb. No miracles are needed in terms of technology. We know what is needed is the political will. And that is get off of fuels that burn as soon as is humanely possible. Of course, giant oil companies and petrostates have no interest in changing uh, the status quo. That's why we haven't seen any cut in fossil fuel use in recent years. Just a minor stop in the rate of growth, less than a percentage point. This report is calling for a 50% cut uh, by 2030, just seven years from now, and then a total cut by 2050. And that alone just gives us a 50% chance of holding it at 1.5 degrees Celsius. Uh, realistically, uh, Bill, uh, can anything be done? Is it just too late? 
It's not too late. It's never too late. It's a matter of how much is worth saving on the other side of 1.5 right there. And it's the moral thing to do for rich countries. And they can start by helping developing countries not cut down their forests and support the people who depend on those forests. It can, it can help by helping coal towns transition in a humane, just uh, way. There's so much that can be done. And it's going to take everything, everyone in all aspects of life. These little things will add up. But we can't give up on this. And, and uh, there's so many incredible solutions right there for the taking. People will be, make fortunes on this new transition. It's just the big question about how long big oil uh, and the lobby can drag out the fight and how much life will be lost as a result of that. All right, Bill Weir, thanks so much. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of The Lead, you can listen to it. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead. From whence you get your podcasts all two hours, just sitting there like a delicious giant taco. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer right next door in a place I like to call the Situation Room. See you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.